Welcome to the one within all to another episode of Interverse Podcast. And we are going at it again, talking astrotheology, the universal wisdom system with a brand new guest to the show. Probably, hopefully not the last time we'll be talking to him, though, because there is so much on the table whenever you bring up the topic of the scripture of the stars. In fact, it's everything that's on the table. Religion, mythology, ancient history. I'm doing air quotes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, probably more beyond that, it's got the alchemical symbolism, the uh, therapeutic, the healers, the miracle workers, all that, and the kitchen sink. Really excited to talk to David Warner Matheson tonight because he has already done the legwork on compiling many, many, many independent sets of inf- uh, variables and datas from the various systems around the world of disparate cultures to demonstrate through the absolute deluge of details (laughs) that we are in fact looking at all one in the same text which is the scripture in the stars the constellations so there's a lot to talk about and i'm really excited you guys can check it out on um, david's website at starmythworld.com that'll be linked in the show notes as well i have just cracked into only one of his books but i plan to read quite a few of them and uh, that one that i have a copy of is the Star Myths of the World, Volume 4, Norse Mythology. And I went ahead and started at Volume 4 because I'm pretty familiar with other parts of the world, like the Greek system. So jumping right into the Norse stuff that is a little more obscure to me in terms of knowing the mythological stories. So we may get into some of that, this conversation. I'm sure we could dedicate a whole podcast to it in the future. And I shot David a few random notes on some stuff I'm particularly interested in at this moment in my own research uh, And I think he prepared some slides for us. So we've got a lot to get into. Thank you so much for being here, David. And uh, welcome to the universe, buddy. Hey, thank you, Chance. It's great to meet you. We, uh, you know, so your guests know, we just spoken to one another for the first time like 10 seconds ago. So thank you for those kind words of introduction. Thank you for purchasing Star Myths Volume 4. I was going to ask you, how'd you choose to jump in with that one? But you kind of just said it, but it, I'm, uh, you know, happy that you're at least a little bit familiar with some of my work and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Welcome to everybody who's listening or watching either live or in the future. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. The welcoming everybody. I forgot to do that. I'm so jazzed up to talk about our asterisms and constellations and all that, but you know, because we only just met 10 seconds ago, I'd really like to kick us off with Who is David Warner Matheson? How has the study of, you know, star myths around the world become a huge focus of your life? You know, what else is important to you? (laughs) Introduce us to yourself, my friend. Well, thanks, Chance. So um, the study of the stars or exploring the stars and the myths is really what I've been doing intensely for the past 12 or now 13 years, but I've loved the stars since I was very young. My dad would take me out to uh, look at the stars when I was little. 
We use the outlining system of HA Ray. I've talked about that on other podcasts for those who might be familiar. I talk about it in some of my books. HA Ray is, I always uh, say it only half jokingly, one of the most important writers who ever lived. H.A. Ray and his wife, Margaret Ray, wrote the books Curious George, the Curious George books. But he also wrote a book called The Stars, A New Way to See Them, a way of looking at the stars that I happened to grow up with that system. My dad got me the books of H.A. Ray and we would go out and look at the stars. But I also always loved the myths. So I actually bought that book uh, from the recommendation in this one. I would love to because whenever you got into the Hercules stuff, I was just like, oh, chaos. I get it now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's really, really interesting how the star outlines can either enable you to see the connections to the ancient myths, or if you don't have a good system, they can really kind of hide it. And it's interesting that H.A. Ray, who wrote the, like I said, with his wife, Margaret, they wrote and illustrated Curious George. And the first one of those was published like in 1946, sometime in the 1940s. And then in 1952, not long after that, he wrote this book called The Stars, A New Way to See Them, which really unlocks the connections to the world's ancient myths. Without that system, it's hard to see the constellations for for starters, but it's also hard to see how they connect to the world's scriptures and also artwork, ancient artwork, Renaissance artwork from around the world on sacred subjects. When they're depicting the divine, they are using celestial features in the artwork itself. And I do have a few slides that can show a little bit of that and lots of uh, videos that I've made kind of show that it's really amazing. But to my knowledge, H.A. Ray never came out and blatantly said, this system is the ancient system that unlocks the world's ancient wisdom, but it really does. So anyway, just, you know, you asked, who am I? I am a star myth explorer you know, lots of other things, but this uh, study of exploration of the ancient myths, I've always loved the myths since I was a child as well. I didn't put them together until much later, but this exploration of the celestial connection of the world's myths has become my life's work uh, to explore and try and understand and share as much as possible. And I'm still learning it. And I'm not the first to notice these connections. You know, that would be ridiculous for me to claim that there's been many people who have talked about this down through the centuries. In fact, I find hints in Plato that he was um, trying to point this out without coming right out and saying it, but there are ancient uh, philosophers and and writers who hinted at this. If you listen to Christmas carols, you'll hear stars and heavenly hosts and things like that. Because the Bible, the the stories of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, in common with all the other myths of the world, are using this ancient system. So it has been noticed by others. There's a there was a preacher in the late 1700s, early 1800s named Robert Taylor, whose oh, sermons yeah. or lectures, yeah, they were they were preserved actually after his death. I don't know that he ever published this, but he spoke about it. And he was so right on in many ways. Some of his conclusions I disagree with, but his analysis, for the most part, I agree with. Some of it I disagree with, but anyway. He spent time in jail for this. Three years total. So check out the Devil's Pulpit. It's called the uh, Devil's Pulpit, and you can find it on archive.org. And it's even Mm -hmm. set up now that even though it's a scan of an old book, you can control F search for words in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, great resource. That one and also another one that's called Astronomico Theological Lecture. So I think the term astrotheology probably comes from Robert Taylor. Sometimes he actually uses the word astrotheology or astrotheological. Usually he would say astronomico theological. So there's a whole nother collection. Devil's Pulpit is one collection. And then there's a whole separate one called astronomico theological lectures. Also Robert Taylor, also on archive that you can fully search. And um, they're both a tremendous resource. So 
like I said, I'm not the first to notice this. And Robert Taylor was doing this 200 years ago. So how come we don't know this? Like he was, he was right on with his analysis and he was prolific in his, you know, explanation of it. And it drew tremendous crowds in London and in other parts of England. And it was written down and published after he died. And yet today, most people have never heard of Robert Taylor or the devil's pulpit or astronomical theological lectures. Stuff from back then, it just hits different. Like uh, mm-hmm. same time period, Anacalypsis right here by Godfrey Higgins. Huge. <laughs> it, it does a great job. It's not specifically only astrotheology. He's hitting it from the etymology language level, which also proves the universal system. If you know the way that certain letters switch from one language to another and you can see like, oh, Pali and Bali, we're looking at the same word or, you know, there's many, many examples. And we talk about that a lot. Uh, the language side is kind of our forte on this channel more than anything. Uh, but I bring up I bring that up in Higgins being from the same time period because it's almost like, and you probably can agree. <laughs> I can pick, well, I, it's not even almost, it's like definite that I compare the mythology to sort of the way comic book movies work today, where there's a reboot and they retell the origin story and they try to hook new audiences because the old version and the lengthy story is too convoluted and they're like rebooting and rebooting. And there's other reasons for the reboots, but between 200 years ago to now, there's been so much auxiliary writing and like resurgences of occultism and theosophy and all these little sects that, you know, they say, this is what they think that the symbolism means. And now the stew or the melting pot of all people's interpretations of the heroes and the gods and et cetera has become super dense, convoluted and internally contradictory. Right. But back 200 ish years ago, maybe there was a little bit less floating around and in, in the ethers in terms of information on these subjects. And people had a more direct line to just go check out what the actual ancient writers themselves said, because they would have been educated in Greek and Latin and Hebrew as a classical education <laughs> in the past incorporated. Yeah, that's a really interesting line of um, discussion. We don't need to spend too much time on it, but I would say that uh, historical context about what was going on in the late 1700s, early 1800s, and then on through the 1800s is probably pertinent to this discussion. So um, Robert Taylor was, he was very influenced by what was going on in France and some of the French writers and what you know what happened in France in 1789 um you know if you if you remember from school and maybe we don't get taught this enough but the American Revolution was 1776 and that was that was a real throwing off of basically the aristocracy or oligarchy of Europe inherited titles are outlawed in our constitution right you cannot it says it right in the Constitution. We shall have no inherited titles over here. They were consciously, Benjamin Franklin was consciously going over to free thinkers in Europe and particularly in France and saying, we need a new beginning that is going to throw off this feudal system. And the feudal system was a very oppressive, enslaving, oligarchical system where the basically a a, a violent, you could call them like a gangster class, lived inside castles. Why do they live in castles? Not because it's romantic and they wanted to be like in a Disney movie to keep the common people from saying, let's get rid of it. Like this, you know, less than 1% that's causing us to work and give all the produce of our labor to them. And they give us like a subsistence poverty existence. So the throwing off of feudalism was a big project. I don't want to get into a big, long history lecture, but France and some of those thinkers in France, the Enlightenment thinkers were trying to ask, how do we abolish feudalism? And feudalism was very much held in place, not just by castles and the, you know, the oligarchy had the armor and the horses and the swords, but what else did they have? Because even with all that armor and weapons, 
you know, they depended on the people for food. They depended on the people for just about everything. So they needed some also mind control. So it wasn't just by force of arms, but also by the church, by the dogma of, well, these people that live in the castles are there by God's will. They are better than you by divine selection. You must not overthrow them by divine decree, or you will burn in hell forevermore. So there was a, there was a mental support to feudalism that came from a literalist Christian church. And the French revolution was very consciously rejecting that and overthrowing that and saying, we don't want that. We want something different. And Benjamin Franklin was saying, we want something different. And the French revolution was um, abolishing, not just, you know, it was saying, look, church, it's fine. If if you want to have your priests or, or representatives serve the people. That's, that's what they're supposed to be doing, but you will be underneath the, the good of the people, not the other way around. And so it was a political, this was going on at the time of Robert Taylor. And he, he acknowledges that he was influenced by the French free thinkers. So it's very interesting during the 1800s, that project kept going. We were working on, hey, how do we abolish kind of the mechanisms of feudalism, which include debt, you know, slavery and things like that. The the stuff that has crept its way back in <laughs> into exactly a, you know the totalitarian happened. tiptoe. You know, what I want to point forward yeah, though what you're so saying. So anyway, to, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to connect to what you're saying back to astrotheology, that it is my understanding oh. that the feudal system is the ecclesiastical system that what you would call the monastic uh, system that was present, uh, you know, all throughout Europe, which comes from the East as well, is how wealth could even be transferred into the hands of a few people that it all gets congregated into the state, which is the church, the the religion and the law are the same thing in the ancient world. So part of that is why, you know, at certain points it was not allowed to even talk about, astrotheology you had to take the scriptures literally because that was a big keystone to their hold that was holding up the uh, feudal system to begin with as you alluded to so you know these keys are important not just to help us get out of a a false mysticism if you will or a false sense of of history but also to see that we actually <laughs> well anyway, I'll, i'm gonna let you take it from there yeah no, it's, it's great. Um, it's it's great that you're kind of pushing, you know, you're pushing on on the on the concepts a little bit to 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 kind of uh, tease out these ideas because this is a really important. And look, it's it's all debatable, and it's all things that we can, you know, maybe think about and and discuss. But what I would say is that. The feudal system in Europe, and particularly Western Europe, you know, so the literalist church broke in half into a Western and an Eastern literalist church, right, in Christianity, but the, and the empire broke in half, the Roman Empire broke in half. But the rise of literalism, Christian literalism, was the death of the ancient world. It, it, it um, you know, consciously said we we're abolishing the gods of Rome and replacing them with this uh, monotheistic system. And that is when feudalism in Europe came into existence, basically. And okay. So you're pointing it comes to with a false claim too that the ancients weren't monotheistic, that, you know, that they started monotheism <laughs> that the church, yeah, did, which isn't yeah. exactly accurate either. Well, it, right. And setting that aside, what I would say is, um, Maybe really big picture, what I would say is there are debates among people who are interested in this subject that I'm, you know, spending all my time looking at as to what does it all mean? And is it all a system of control? Is, like you said, the ecclesiastical system is how you vacuum up all the money into um, 
you know, the old and real property, more than money, the real property, you know, yeah, the, the resources of the land. Okay. So let me lay out kind of just briefly, really quickly. My position is that this system, first of all, I'll show you some evidence that it is an ancient worldwide system. And, you, and your questions that you kind of sent me in that email today are, are kind of pointers of things that you're really interested in talking about show some tremendous evidence of that. These connections across cultures. This is an ancient system, and I argue it is a positive system. It is a system that uplifts people. It shows how to organize society in a way that enables men and women to use their gifts to their fullest potential. So it's a societal, it's on a societal level and on an individual level. It's there to help us live up to our full potential. It's not there to trick us into you know, mindless obedience or some, you know, some people say, oh yeah, all these systems are there because the Anunnaki needed people to <laughs> mine the gold and cough it up. And so they blah, 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 is not an oppressive, um, tyrannical, impoverishing or enslaving system. It is not, I can show you evidence to argue that it's actually a beneficial system, but like, it's like, well, I'll say I agree with you, but that maybe yeah. it's been hijacked. It's exactly right. So that's where I was going. I was going to say it's kind of like Kung Fu. You can have a powerful system, let's say Kung Fu, and you've got the evil Kung Fu masters who know how to use it to bully the town and take over it. Or you can have the, you know, the positive use of it, which is to protect against bullying and to enable people to uh, enable the whole village to work together and and go to a positive place. So it's like, it's a powerful system. It's very ancient. In fact, it's so ancient that the origination of this system is almost certainly more ancient than the most ancient civilizations that we know of. In fact, there's very good geological evidence that there was a cataclysm or a catastrophe or many series of catastrophes on our planet that separate us from something much more advanced that's pre like ancient Egypt. Like if you look at my friend Ben at Uncharted X shows the amazing technology that was used to make some of the Egyptian or some of the artifacts in Egypt that the dynastic Egyptians probably just carved their own names on. It was like they collect the first three dynasties or dynasties of Egypt. Those pharaohs were like collecting up these amazing artifacts that they, there's no way the dynastic Egyptians could make this stuff, but they would imitate it, but they couldn't make like the amazing technology that was needed included like power tools and lathes and machining that even our people familiar with machining look at it and say, well, this is obviously machining, but it's of a level that like, how are they doing it down to that, you know, precision? It's, it's, it's machining at a level we don't have. So this whole system is probably from that ancient, so ancient that it was ancient before the ancient Egyptians and some cataclysm separated what we think of as the ancient world from something even more deep ancient than that. So even <laughs> ancient India, ancient Egypt, they had the remnants of some amazing system. They did their best with what they had left, but even the ancients probably didn't fully understand what this system was for. So I think it could have been a misused deliberately or B you know, kind of used the wrong way, like accidentally, like, well, let's use this system as best we can. Anyway, I think it's actually a positive system. It is not a system for enslavement, but you're right. It has been hijacked is a very good word, or even it's like the invasion of the body snatchers where like some, uh, you know, evil, um, intent has occupied the outer shell of something that was actually good originally. Um, so anyway, I said a whole bunch on that, but it no, does, but I, it, I it like does relate. Yeah. It relates to, it relates to politics and everything that's going on right now. Cause in the 17, 1800s, they were trying to throw off feudalism, but as you noted, feudalism struck back and this is very like mainstream or uh, cutting edge economist, Michael Hudson, for instance, who's a professor emeritus at a, a, a university 
and has been teaching economics since the 1960s and has worked on Wall Street. And he, he explains that economics was going in a positive direction from trying to throw off feudalism. And then the people who were benefiting from basically feudal type structures said, hey, this is no good. <laughs> we're not going to be able to just, you know, have an oligarchy anymore. But this isn't really for oligarchy. It's for like a, the proper running of society. We could get into, I, I've talked enough, I'll, I'll stop there. But I do think that context is important. Like what was going on in 1810 and 1820? And maybe that's why Robert Taylor has been forgotten because the oligarchy struck back if that makes sense. Oh yeah, I think so. Um, and we can, yeah, we can probably, we will, we'll, I'm sure tag back onto some of these subject matters, but to <laughs> segue here, you <laughs> talked about how this system is about steering society, the ship of state. Right. And I don't think it's a coincidence that all of our words possess, like that are pertaining to rulership and leadership and, <laughs> You know, ship, ship, ship. There's all kinds of ships going on. And we have, of course, the prow that we see up in the sky, the Argo constellation. Very interesting that it's a prow. There are, I think the biggest clue there is the word prow, which is a bow, which gives you a, also the bow of the ship gives you a linguistic connection to so many words like, you know, the bow that is an arc in terms of a shape of the rainbow, a bow that you shoot in the hands of say Sagittarius, the word arche, which means head in Greek, which also means wisdom. Uh, but you know, that is an arch as well. Arch, arche, archon. It also means ruler. Yeah. Ruler. So uh, exactly a head. Like and a it goes on and on when you start to connect the dots of uh, in the language like that, in the puns and synonyms, which I think the ancient astronomer priests were very into wordplay that the wordplay was how they were even divining some of the qualities of these characters or the aspects of the narrative and sometimes the wordplay is actually like picturesque wordplay like in Ophiuchus the middle shape being an obelisk or a tombstone or you know a keystone in Hercules's chest and there's many examples like that but back to this idea of the prow the front of the ship the ship that's cut in half whenever it goes through the clashing rocks and the story of Jason and the Argonauts and many other such stories, the uh, this ship shows up all over the place, actually, in what we understand to be historical, you know, artifacts and uh, evidence of that nature that the Viking longboat is too proud. <laughs> you know, there's two front ends. It can go either direction. The uh, Phoenicians had a boat that looked just like this, and they were definitely sailing around doing mercantile. And, and these sailors would need to navigate by the stars. So it was extra important for them to preserve the knowledge of this system if they weren't its originators, which I could definitely get behind that whoever the originators were are so far obscured by the mists of time that we may never know. But, uh, you know, there's also an element to this where like the divine, why I think this is a system for the uplift of humanity, where when you start to investigate this, the divine winks at you in in ways through the words that don't seem to be possibly intentional or connected by any physical means. The example I'll give is that the, uh, <laughs> the, the longboat of the Vikings is called a drakar, which is very similar to the word dracon in Greek, which is a dragon. And they Chinese have the exact same boat that they call a dragon boat. And the, this is a long boat, but the ancient Chinese word for dragon is long, you know, so like, right. there's these connections that I don't think anybody did on purpose, but you know, we're getting this hint of, the logos or something coming through and expressing through the creativity of humans. Really interesting. Yeah. And that's a, that's an interesting connection between the bow of, you know, shooting a bow and the bow, usually they pronounce it bow on a ship, but it's spelled just the same way, B-O-W, but the bow in the stern and the long, like lung, the, uh, you know, the, there's a, there's a part of uh, Hong Kong that's called Gaolung or Kowloon, which means nine dragons. Gao is nine and Lung or Oolong tea. That's black dragon tea. You're right. A Viking longboat. And they do have dragon boats. And there's actually a special dragon boat race that happens once a year. Like it's, it's 
connected to the cycles of the heavens. In other words, like you have a dragon boat race a certain day of the year to celebrate a certain relationship between the earth and the sun and the moon. Really interesting points. A couple more things to just pile on that, that uh, Dracon, the Greek Mm -hmm. word for dragon also can be translated or is translated as an ogre. Hmm. And the other thing that it can mean is to watch and you're specifically watching something that gleams or flashes. So a dracon can mean a flash or a gleam or a watcher or a dragon or an ogre. And an ogre, I think that's funny because like many languages going from east to west or vice versa, R's and L switch. So the ogre is ogle and you <laughs> ogle something, you dracon it, you watch it, you flash. So these are the watchers. I think when we even see symbolism of the dragon, we're probably also being, a, it's an allusion to watchers, those that are watching the sky Hmm. as those who would be piloting those kind of boats would have to do to navigate. But yeah, all this connects back to navigating, not just the individual boat you're on, but how that fractally, you know, as above, so below as within. So without there's this fractality of nature that if, you know, if you can figure out how to steer a boat full of people rowing it (laughs) through stormy waters and unknown seas, then you can apply those principles to all of society or down to an individual level in some way. Yeah, no, it's, it's, that's really interesting. Look, the, the, this exploration that I do is primarily between specific myths and the stars and not as much of kind of the directions that you're going, but uh, those are obviously valid uh, lines to explore. And how do we get the myths if not through words? And in fact, Around the world, very interesting fact is that myths are always handed down in virtually every culture. I say virtually just in case there's some somewhere that I don't know of that doesn't in verse, in poetry. In other words, in stylized language, like we don't you and I aren't speaking poetry to one another right now, Chance. We're just talking in prose. You know, we're not we're not making sure that our meter is exactly, you know, rhythmic, like it could fit into a song by Led Zeppelin and every line would rhyme. We're not doing that. That's stylized language. That's like formal, but it's special language. It's language that's metered, just like measured. You know, you were talking about, you know, who gives the measures or where did that come from? And it's measured language. It's rhythmic language. I know you're into sound healing. That's, um, you know, that's, that's a really interesting words are magical or words have power or rhythms have power. Frequencies have power. I've got a didgeridoo back here, you know, didgeridoos have power. Um, and that's a very ancient instrument that maybe, you know, along with the drum, the most ancient human instrument is probably a didgeridoo. The Aboriginal indigenous people of Australia have been playing didgeridoos for tens of thousands of years. And, um, you know, drums are used in, which is a rhythm, you know, making device drums are used in every single culture around the world. And when the literalist Christians came to Europe and especially like in Scandinavia, they would take away the drums. Cause I was like, we got to get the shamans can't have their drums. That's, you know, more dangerous than. Yeah. There's let, too much thrusting and pumping and sexuality yeah. with the drums. <laughs> it's also, it's also puts, it can put you into a trance state. It can, it can enable, uh, um, you know, inspiration and contact with something uh, beyond ourselves. So anyway, what I'm saying is that the myths around the world are given to us in verses. The Bible is full of verses. Yes, there's prose parts of the Bible, but it's still divided into verses and there's lots of poetry in there. The the Homer, you know, attributed to Homer, epics of the Odyssey and the Iliad, verse. Mahabharata of India, verses. The Vedas are verses. The, the um, you know, just around the world, basically, whether it's handed down orally in the form of you know, chanting or sacred stories that are oral or whether they're written down, they are in poetry. So these kinds of, and poetry has to do with double meanings and metaphor and connections between things. Like a good poet sees connections between things that open our eyes to, um, you know, something, some new way of seeing things. That's what poetry is. It's like, I'm going to make a metaphor out of this and, 
shed new light and new perspective on something. So, um, so what you're saying is important, but, um, and, and valid and, and, uh, intriguing. It's not my necessarily area of primary focus. I'm going to try and show a little bit of what I'm talking about with, with my slides, especially for people who aren't as familiar. And even those who have seen millions of my other presentations, hopefully there'll be some things in here that are new, but, um, that all that is very interesting. And, and just I'll close it off by saying, yeah, an arc or, um, like a box that floats, we see babies put into arcs around the world and they use the word arc like Moses in the Bible in Exodus two is put into an arc of bulrushes and the Bible uses the word arc. And then later there's an arc of the covenant where the actually in the word is to, uh, like Tibet or mm-hmm. Tibet or TBT because the Hebrew doesn't have vowel points. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, and this, con- I mean, I think yeah. there's a connection to that with the actual nation of Tibet. I think it there's a, well you know, they have a mountain where they claim that the flood hero chained his boat to this mm-hmm. mountain. And uh, I can't remember the name off the top of my head of the mountain <laughs> somewhere in these, somewhere in this notebook, but mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, that the arc, I'm glad we're getting to this. Cause I, I'm super fascinated in the arc as the mm-hmm. possibly one of the most foundational myths or that you could connect all of them back to this because it is the, the boat is the emblem of the fem- female generative power. The mast being the lingam, the hull being the yoni. Uh, in fact, the Hebrew word for a boat, not an ark, but a boat, because the Tibet means like more of a box or a chest, hmm. is is a O N I or A N I Oni Ani. You know, again, we don't have exact vowel translations, but that's why the baby is in the box because it's hmm. in the womb. It's within the female generative power, hmm. and how I understand the Brahminical system being one of the older versions. Their explanation is that, you know, back to that catastrophism idea, I think that's wrapped up in the mythos completely that they figured, well, we see everything die in winter and come back and regenerate in spring and that God, who the creator of everything, could not make a mistake. And so anything we see that passes away, disappears, corrupts, vanishes, must eventually come back. Otherwise, it only ever happened once. And then it disappeared, meaning God would have made a mistake because it wasn't permanent and thus it's not true or real. So everything that was must come back and there must be some greater cycle of destruction and regeneration and greater cycle within that. So that eventually there's one where the whole cosmos is completely poof, gone as the, you know, the, <laughs> as an Egyptian version, Gab and Nut are back to copulating they're back to being together there's no longer this sort of spark in the gap between the masculine and the feminine that is manifesting the physical world and so they conceptualize that with a boat on the primeval primeval waters of chaos where the savior being is riding on this boat as the last you know as the seed of all uh, potential you know ready to be sprouted again once the he's eros you know, this is Eros, H-R-S, E-R-O-S, uh, you know, back to the, there's, there's so many connections here. I'm, I'm hogging the mic too much, but no, 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 I just no, want to this... set the stage for this, that, you know, the, the regeneration of all things comes from, uh, you know, I don't think they're necessarily talking about a literal worldwide flood. I think that's more of looking at the winter or oceanic side of the Zodiac. Not that I'm against the possibility of cataclysms, but yeah, that's why this arc myth is so important because it's a seed that's going in the box or a seed that's going in the ground, in the furrow. Uh, it's the mythos of the seed, the corn myth. All of these things tie back to the, are, are reflections of the arc mythos or the boat on the waters of chaos. Yeah, no, it's, it's obvious that you've, uh, you know, you've thought a lot about these things and it's really, it's really great to explore these concepts. And what I would say is to like, how does this apply to our life? Or just, let's just like step back and ask ourselves, like, why, why? Like, what's the point of like, do we really need all this esoteric wordplay and myth creation to explain seeds going into the ground and growing? Like, 
you know, we could just do that and grow the seeds and eat it and just be happy or make beer out of it. Yeah, we don't need any special story to feel attraction between mom and dad and make a baby. And, you know, I heard your explanation or the, the, you know, possible explanation of, well, we don't want God to have made a mistake or, you know, but um, actually, you know, that's like the that's Greek, an explanation of the cyclical nature. Yeah, the, things are cyclical. The doctrine and, of the cyclical and, nature. And gods actually make mistakes all the time or do, you know, <laughs> questionable things all the time, especially the Norse gods who actually the Norse gods are are going to perish in the end. They're not even um, eternal. They're, they're going to be, um, you know, Odin and Thor at Ragnarok both die at the same time that they kill their greatest adversaries. Um, it's, uh, it's really interesting and that's cyclical, but then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth or, you know, that's the biblical way of saying it, but you're right. The, these cycles go all the way out to the changing of the ages, but I'm just rhetorically saying, Hmm, why? And what I would argue is that this has to do with showing us something about ourselves like listeners may be saying yeah like flood maybe it was literal maybe it wasn't but what does that have to do with me well you i believe it's like yes the the boat is like the female generative principle and that's really interesting about the hebrew word that it sounds like the like the word yoni is is it for people who um, it's a pole in yeah, a hole, yeah. dude. It all goes yeah. back to that. In well, a hole is a hole. <laughs> yeah, but why do you like, okay, but guess what? You don't actually even need to teach people about sex. Like they know it automatically. Like, you, you know, if you're 20 and you meet a girl who's 20 and neither of you have been taught anything, you can figure out like how to have sex without any myth. So it's like, that's not like the two of you will figure it out. Like it's in, it's in there already. So why do we need all this wordplay, all this myth? Because they're using, I would argue what these ancient myths are doing is using the cycles of the heavens, the male and female principle in an esoteric way, meaning it stands for something else or it helps to open our eyes to something else the female or the receptive you know principle even if you're a male you have that the the flesh of the body is receptive it receives the pattern or it receives the divine spark it is in a sense the ark or the boat through which we're going through this life and it's carrying inside of it something precious that's this divine spark or this authentic self or this uh, we could call it lots of things. I've referred to it as like the deeper self that cutting edge psychologists like the, the, the psychologists who are talking about trauma, which Dr. Peter Levine was one of the first. And when he writes about his, he went to UC Berkeley and got his PhD in psychology in the seventies. And he said in the seventies, people were only just beginning to talk about the word trauma in a psychological way. Trauma means a wound. You know, if you go to a trauma surgeon, they're talking about a physical wound. They're talking about a literal wound. But he said there was this group of thinkers who were starting to say, yeah, there's physical wounds and there's trauma surgeons, but there's also mental trauma. There's um, mental trauma. And why were they talking about that in the 70s? Because of Vietnam. People were coming back from Vietnam with horrific psychological burdens from what they'd experienced in Vietnam. And so in the seventies, you had post-traumatic stress disorder being diagnosed for the first time where people, did people have PTSD after World War II? Of course, but nobody called it that until after the Vietnam War, when these first cutting edge psychologists were starting to explore this concept of trauma and these cutting edge now there's it's still not mainstream. It's still cutting edge healers like Peter Levine, who's still active, Dr. Gabor Mate, other um, uh, Richard Schwartz. These are psychologists and doctors and healers who have dealt with thousands of patients, and they're talking about trauma as a separation from self. I'm just, I'm just. Um, oh, that that's I'm going off a little bit. Yeah, I'm going on. Works in uh, yeah. the human energy field. Your 
part of your personal energy is held off to the side. And then the fascinating thing is like to really quick, like what I do with sound healing, because you mm. mentioned uh, noticing that I do that is that you can use sound or if you're sensitive enough, just your own body to find where in the six foot bubble space or, you know, mm. individual person's own cosmic egg of their energy field, their electromagnetic field off their body, where the stuck energy is that constitutes this trauma or separation of self, something they don't want to feel or remember, uh, or sometimes a limiting belief. And depending on where it is, <laughs> you know, if it's like at the hip level, three feet away, or at the shoulder level, one foot away, I can, you know, there's an anatomy to that. And I can actually tell people mm. what it is, like mm. when it happened, what the belief was, what the feeling was. And so like what you're saying is actually, you know, uh, being proven out by practitioners of uh, techniques that utilize this kind of new, but it's an old idea that's just been expanded on biofield anatomy, the actual anatomy of your energy field, where that separate self energy is detectable as a, you know, a disturbance in the vibrations around you, so to speak. Yeah, that's, that's, um, look, I have no doubt that shamanic, um, you know, I've, I've written about all yeah, cultures. Yeah. All cultures are essentially shamanic. Even the Bible has aspects where Daniel says I was on my face in the spirit for three days or, um, you know, he was in trance for three days. It's, it's shamanic. Um, and uh, you know, that word, it comes from a specific part of the world that, you know, basically where Eastern Russia is today, but, and I'm not a shaman, but I believe that everybody has, um, everybody has access to something beyond themselves. And then some people are able to, like you said, pinpoint, Hey, I'm finding something here. I have no doubt that what you just described is related to like, uh, how, shamanic cultures heal people and so what i was going to kind of bring it around to i'm just just to turn the corner and i'll share some slides so that so that uh, people can say uh, what is all that you know they're talking about all this stuff up in the ether i'll try and bring it down to something a little more concrete but what i believe the myths are doing and why we need the myths and why the myths are created in this certain way is because that separation from self psychologists Again, I'm not a psychologist, but I can read the, the works of psychologists who've dealt with tens of thousands of patients. They explain that separation happens unconsciously. It is not a conscious choice. It is a survival mechanism that the brain is wired to do, particularly in early childhood, where you will separate and suppress your authentic self for very good reasons of survival, because as a two-year-old, you can't survive on your own. So you will suppress it, but you won't know that you've done it. And so the myths are depicting it. You have this inside of you. You don't even know it. You're not even aware that you have suppressed this part of who you are. And so the myths dramatize that happening, like with a baby being put into an ark that turns out to be Moses or Perseus in the Greek myths. He's put into an ark with his mother and set adrift or Sargon of a All the gods that are torn apart. That's the same thing. That is your higher self there. Your higher self is actually indestructible. So when Osiris is cut into 14 pieces and he ends up in the underworld in a box or Jesus is, you know, speared in the side and humiliated and ends up in the, tomb or Inanna of ancient Sumer goes down to the underworld and she's successively humiliated. She's divested of one piece of clothing or ornamentation after another until she's completely naked. And then she's hung up on a hook in the underworld, but she comes back. Why do we have that? It's not just because, oh, well, seeds get put in the ground and then they grow and then we can make beer or bread out of them. Okay, great. I didn't need that big, long story for that. I can do that myself or uh you know men and women get together and have sex well okay i don't need a story for that either like it's natural we know how to do it it's like it's programmed in there it's we have these stories and these elaborate pictures because 
we've forgotten who we are or we've suppressed who we are or we've been separated from who we are. And the separation is so painful that we spend the rest of our life trying to fix it or we're looking for who we are. And the myths are pointing us towards the fact that that happened and towards the path for recovery. And so it's an individual. And also I think it's a societal, it's, it's really profound and, and amazing. Uh, and, and that's what I think it's really doing. Yeah. And there's, <laughs> there's a lot of layers to that too. Like uh, we do a series on astro herbalism mm. on my other show where once a month we're getting together with some herbalists and looking at the doctrine of signatures mm-hmm. of different plants and how you can determine some of their qualities based on how they align with qualities of the zodiacal constellations. Mm-hmm. And so you could find out that like, you know, for example, elderberry might have something to do with your structure and your bones because mm-hmm. of certain qualities that it had. And, you know, I'm not the herbalist in the in the group, so I'm just there like to, to learn and take it in. But like, that's another example of how things to know the order that nature does things in, to know the Zodiac man, Aries at the head, Pisces down to the feet, like all of that can also help you with insights about yourself and who you are and how nature works beyond like that will give you a direct line to your intuition about it, which is your inner knowing, which is what your deeper self really constitutes is like the all knowing part of yourself, the the universal part of yourself. But yeah, let's, uh, let's jump into a couple slides here, but you know, before we finish up the first hour and then I I definitely want to come back to this subject in the second hour because I have uh, I have some more stuff to lay on you and see your thoughts about like the origin of where this information even came from, but we'll get to that. Yeah, for sure. So that's super interesting. What you just said though, about the different, you know, plants or different connections to different organs, which are connected to different, you know, there's the 12 signs of the Zodiac plus the 13th Ophiuchus, the arrangement of societies, there's, a great researcher named John Michelle. He's now passed away. It's spelled like Mitchell, but without a T. And I believe it's pronounced John Michelle. He was English. And he's the researcher who really talked about ley lines and energy lines in England. But then he finds them in China. And, uh, but he wrote a book called 12 Tribe Nations, which is how, and he finds evidence that cultures around the world organize themselves in 12 section um, kind of circles or 12 section uh, arrangements with a 13th sacred one in the center. And you can find that in the Bible, but he finds it around the world, the layout of Ireland, the layout of Wales, the layout of England, the layout of Madagascar, the Incas, the, um, you know, around the world, he finds this pattern. It's the indigenous like, Mexicans had a trial of trial by jury of 12 of your peers. So did the Celtics before, you know, the, the Roman system came in. I think that's why I think the ecclesiastical system of the Roman Empire just came in and set up shop on an already existing system that everyone was familiar with. But, yeah, yeah. what you just said is is crucial to understand that it's the 12 tribes, the 12 jurors, uh, the judge being the one that they're around. You know, it goes on and on. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure if I muted myself or not. Yeah, let me. Uh, um, so, so like the connection, it's it's like that pattern and that way of understanding. It unlocks something. It enables it enables societies to 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 you know people who are great at shipbuilding can make amazing ships or people who are great at architecture can make amazing structures. It's like, if you set up society the right way, then it's like we're unlocked to use our gifts and live up to our potential. And it's also individual. Like I was trying to explain with the part about self, like when we get back in touch with that part of us that we've been separated from or that we've suppressed, we can actually start to live up to our full potential more and more and the the more we're separated from who we are the the more we kind of self sabotage or or don't necessarily act the way we want to act or be the way we want to be so anyway uh the myths are part of this you know vast ancient knowledge that manifests itself in so many different ways but that the myths is the area that I know the best so let me show some let me hit present 
And let's see what happens if I can get my interverse slides up here. Slides? I have no slides. I'll go. When I have to upload them, can I just um, share my screen somehow? Yeah, yeah. You can do it either way. Oh, yeah. Share screen. Sorry. I'm, I'm a, a rookie here on this particular this particular great. one. Here we go. All right. Select window or screen. How about just show the whole thing? Um, yes. Uh, uh, entire entire screen. Oh yeah, sure. On, on this stuff. Okay. Um. Allow. Let's see. Cool. All right. Are you seeing some share screen now? Yes, sir. So if you All just right. tap over to the window you want to share, I can bring it up. Oh, okay. I've, I've, uh, let's see. Right now it's showing us our your window of our conversation. Oh, shoot. Okay, let's see. Sorry. Should have practiced. Um, <laughs> There's no problem. This is live um, TV, folks. Um, <laughs> if I just what? <laughs> Tab over to where? Yeah, if you just make on your main screen, whatever it is you want to share, make that big. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. It's not showing up. You're not seeing Interverse podcast right now. I am just seeing your video. My face. Uh, yeah, us. Shoot. Like that. All right. Let's figure out what's up here. You're sharing your entire screen. Oh, <laughs> I see that. Pesky. Um, you're sharing your entire screen. Yeah, that's what I want to do. Let's see. You're not seeing. Yeah, we're just getting the screen of your StreamYard window. That's okay. okay. We can. Um, I keep throwing it up there, but you're not seeing it. So I have to find the right button. Yeah. If you did, you do it as actual slideshow. Yeah. It's a, it's a. Mac so it might work better for you if you do. Present. If you choose the slides option and then just navigate to that file where it lives on your computer. I could do that. That'll probably be the best way to go. Uh, I just want to share the screen. Share screen. Screen sharing is easiest with two monitors. Entire screen. You're not seeing Interverse podcast right now? No, no, it's still showing our StreamYard window. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's okay. Having, and the slides are optional. I mean, I think we can keep Yeah, no, for sure. I don't want to ship derail us. Yeah, I don't want to derail us, but let's see if I can um, do slides. Sometimes the third way, time is a charm. I'm pretty sure that's where we got the actual idea of the Trinity from. <laughs> People notice, like, if I just try three times, it works. All right. We'll try one more time. Share screen. We're close people. Mm. We're, uh, we're gaining viewers from this actually. So mm -hmm. <laughs> now that we're not even losing people. Like, you know what? what? I'll select keynote, which is where the thing is. And now maybe you'll see keynote. Are you seeing it by any chance? No, no. Does it say interverse podcast? No, it's not. Up, so. oh, we man. might just, we might just hang off on that. So disappointing. Let's see. Share screen. All right. Well, um, what we can do, David, if, uh, yeah. if you don't mind, mm -hmm. we'll have like a three minute intermission mm -hmm. here in a second. And yeah. I'm going to put some music up and we're switching from the first hour to the second hour. And you can just email me what you've got. Mm -hmm. in that massive. Yeah. It's a oh, massive, it's massive file, but, um, <laughs> no, we'll, we'll figure it out in three minutes. I guarantee it. Uh, so I guess people who are part of Rockfin can see the slides, but I do have a lot of, uh, videos. That people yeah. Can. You might also try the option of when you present and share screen to, uh, choose a window and just find the window that it is you're wanting to share mm -hmm. instead of entire screen. That'll right. probably work pretty well too. Okay. Right on. <laughs> right on. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll, uh, let's see where we're at time wise. I think, you know, we can sort of start giving the free hour there, uh, 
outro, if you will, where you tell people what you're working on, where they can connect with you, what kind of things that you're offering books and all, you know, what social medias you like to talk to people through and all that. Okay, great. Well, so you didn't see any of those screens. <laughs> no, no, nothing came up. All right. Well, Mercury is not even retrograde right now. <laughs> Look, thanks. Thanks to those who tuned in. Um, sorry about not sharing slides, but we will get it in the second hour. Um, so like you said at the beginning, Chance, I have a pretty extensive website at Star Myth World, which is short for Star Myths of the World. So just Star Myth world.com also undying stars.com has some of my online courses where i do get into the ark of the covenant the ark of moses um i've got a a couple courses one that's called celestial bible tour part one that has the flood in it and celestial bible tour part two really goes into the life of moses the crossing of the red sea um Joseph, the Joseph story where he goes down to Egypt, which is another suppression. You know, he gets thrown into a deep hole or a cistern or an empty well, and then he gets sold into basically slavery or bondage in Egypt. And But he comes back. These are pictures of recovery of self. So on undyingstars.com is, is where probably the easiest way to get to my courses. But there's a whole lot of archived podcasts on Star Myth World. There are videos that I've made and put up on YouTube. So feel free to subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. And that's all accessible through Star Myth World. Or if you just use Instagram and want to see pictures of me doing things other than or playing didgeridoo. Surfing. Uh, surfing, yeah. Um, but also I put some uh, Star Myth related stuff on Instagram. That's also Star Myth World. So thanks for thanks for your interest in that. And like I said, I'll try and get those slides fixed for the second half. Yeah, man, I'm really happy about how our, you know, last hour of knowing each other is gone. And <laughs> I'm sure that we are going to have a great time on the second hour. People can find the link to Rockfin posted in the live chat here. I'm putting it in again. Rockfin is a great option. If you have never checked it out, it is like a Netflix for independent creators. One subscription cost gets you all the premium content on the network. There's also a ton of free stuff on there that you can watch without making an account. So, you know, come on over there and check out a, a channel that supports creators much, much better than YouTube does and without censoring them as well. So there's a lot of advantages. If you really just don't want to do Rockfin, you can get on my Patreon and we will put that up there ASAP after the conversation is over. And thank you, David. Loved uh, loved the first hour. Really excited to keep reading Star Myths of the World Volume 4. And then I'm probably going to next pick up the Ancient Universal System. <laughs> and uh, we'll go from there. I appreciate all the legwork you've done for us to uncover all the connections. And there's always more to go. But, you know, you've done a great job weaving this tapestry of the stars for us. And see you guys on the other side. Thanks a lot, buddy. Thanks, Chance.
Thank you.